Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, a tropical horror by William Hope Hodgson. This was first published in the Grand Magazine, June 1905. We're reading it out of uh, publication in Weird Tales, summer 1973, uh, which is 68 years after its first publication. And this is the first publication after that first publication. Um, Since then, it has been in print pretty much continuously since 73 up into today, uh, at least 2018. And it was notably not included in any of Hodgson's uh, collected fiction while he was alive. Um, And I'm not 100% sure why, but uh, some of the speculation as to maybe perhaps the content of the story is part of it. Maybe he wasn't as proud of some of the writing in here. Um, But it is a very popular story of his, in part because it's short. It does what it says on the tin, perhaps. Um, but I think you have some thoughts about this story too. I, I've read a lot of Hodgson, so I, I'm quite familiar with his life story, um, brief, brief as it is, um, and, uh, his fiction. How, how about you? I am not familiar with his life story. I haven't read much of his, uh, fiction, although I read, uh, some of it, uh, the house on the borderland mm-hmm. about, uh, about the same time this was reprinted, that is in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a long time ago, and I think of him as fundamentally a Victorian writer, although that's not technically true since mm, yeah. Victoria was dead when, you know, had just been dead for a few years when this was written. Um, it's the story. Um, which I'll give a brief summary of if you want, mm-hmm. Jesse. But but I think it's fair to say that the story is, in effect, one experience. It, it's, it's not one scene in that there's a, a change from day to night and night to day and, mm-hmm. and so on. But it all happens in one confined place. And it has the sort of unity that although not within 24 hours, it has the sort of unity that uh, Aristotle talks about as appropriate to tragedy, unity of time, place, and uh, an effect, um, or action, I should say. Um, it's all going on in the same place over a continuous amount of t- space of time, um, and the action is all related to this one thing that's going on, until at the end you get a back frame. So, this this thing that's going on um, is basically well. I guess I am giving a bit of a of a summary here. Maybe all we'll need. Um, we have a first person narrator. We don't know it's a back framed story until we get to the to that back frame. It's a first person narration about the encounter of a becalmed sailing ship with what turns out to be an absolutely horrendous tropical uh, horror, the Mm -hmm. title. It is a sea monster of some enormous size, um, tentacled, eel-like body, weighing 100 tons, if the narrator's speculation is correct. And it proceeds in the course of the novel, of the short story, to become slimier, 
uh, more implacably vicious and utterly lethal to what turns out to be everybody on the ship, with the exception of the narrator, who barely escapes. And that's what we find out with the back, uh, the back frame that, in fact, the monster had been driven off uh, at the end or had slunk off at the end. But our narrator was so debilitated that had he not been encountered by another passing ship, um, he would have died himself. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I mean, there's no uh, there's no interhuman dramatic tension. It's basically man against the elements, except this time the elements are personified, or I should say, uh, yeah, monstrified. They they're in, incarnated. Yes. right. They're incarnated in uh, in the tropical horror. And uh, yeah, I have some theories about it, but I, I will say that it is incredibly well written. And um, I'll I'll share my theories at some point, Jesse. I'm glad you asked, but I'm also interested in knowing something more about his life because that might help us understand how he would have allegorized it and why he would have chosen or not to include it in a collection in his own lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I was also interested since the writing is so effective of this kind of work, what are some of the places in the story that you found particularly noteworthy? Oh yeah. Um, there's a, a number of them. Um, of course I, I zoomed into the part where the guy's talking about, I just had a terrible dream <laughs> midway through the story. Um, but, uh, I think, I think it's very, uh, w- one of the things to note is this is both representative and not representative of a lot of Hodgson's work. Um, he was, um, this is his second published story. Um, it's the first to deal with the sea, um, and sea monsters. Um, there's another story that's similarly, um, about a sea monster and a, a sea monster attack, on a particular ship in a very similar way, although the effect is quite different. Um, and, and a lot of his stories that if, if you don't read, uh, the two major novels that everybody knows about, um, or at least you, you've read one of them house on the borderland. Yeah. And there's another one called the Nightland, which is a startlingly long and interesting, uh, dying earth stories that, millions of years in the future um other than that he's basically known as a nautical writer he writes uh stories of the sea there are exceptions um here and there but that's what he's best known for his collection man of deep waters um which could have included this um it's basically weird fiction set at sea um uh the the story i was referring to earlier just came back to mind is called out of the storm and what's interesting about that is it it takes sort of the opposite tack on this this story, which is basically a straight up encounter with a monster, whereas that one it's uh, possibly much more allegorical as a is is the monster just the storm, right? Uh, and you can look at it that way, and it's designed to be looked at that way, as that mm-hmm. they that the. the the thing attacking them was the sea and the sky, right? Here, it's not the sea and the sky. And in fact, it's a becalmed situation. Hodgson uh, wrote so much about the sea. 
in part because he's an expert at it. He went to sea as a very young man. Um, one of the great websites out there that I was reading about this story on um, mentioned, you know, that uh, one way of looking at this is that the two feature characters in in the front frame or the the main body of the story uh, are both Hodgson. One Hodgson, the naive boy who went to sea and uh, was disabused of his uh, kindly view of the of of seafaring and the other the older wiser more taciturn um and experienced and traumatized hodgson and i thought that was an interesting possibility there's there's uh, an article hodgson wrote about how you shouldn't send your sons to sea and i read it a long time ago i i can't quite uh, recall every detail, but he doesn't explicitly state the, I think, the main reason. Um, he says that he was abused um, and uh, he really built himself up um, in perhaps response to that. He became one of the first um, promulgators of bodybuilding. And if you look online and type in William Hope Hodgson, uh, you know, bodybuilder, you'll see photos of him all buff, um, looking very manly and sexy. Um, and it is implied at least by many other researchers that perhaps the reason that he built himself up and made himself a strong physical creature is because of the uh, abuse that he suffered for being a handsome young teenager, uh, on a sailing ship. Um, that is to say, perhaps he was assaulted uh, sexually by people uh, on that ship, that he on the ships that he worked. When he got out of uh, seafaring, um, he turned his hand to writing. Um, he wrote this article saying, you know, why you shouldn't go to sea. And mostly uh, what I recall is him saying, you know, there's physical abuse, but also um, that the pay is bad and that, you know, there's better things to do. He was an avid photographer, which I think is interesting because he really does capture some imagery here in a way that you couldn't unless you're thinking about imagery. I think imagery comes up very much in his writings as opposed to dialogue. Um, and uh, I mentioned that he was into physical culture. He he contributed many articles um, about you know bodybuilding and such to the magazines. He He had an encounter with uh, with Harry Houdini, in which Houdini um, was upset that uh, he'd been physically damaged by Hodgson, who was perhaps trying to make a name for himself. Um, uh, he, Hodgson put the handcuffs on Houdini's wrists so badly, or so so meanly, so harshly, that uh, Houdini complained about this, um, the physical injuries that this strong young man um, had done to him. Um, when Hodgson finished his uh, his writing career, it was um, in the army. He had refused a seat in the navy, uh, much something he would have been eminently qualified for. But he ended up being a artillery uh, officer in World War One. Uh, volunteered for that, although he was a little bit old to have to, you know, be thought to forced to volunteer. And he also. Um, he died in World War One from an artillery shell. So, long story short, um, 
this is a guy who had a spectacularly interesting early career and then died. I've read a lot of his war reports and many other things by him, and I find him really interesting. This is, I think, one of his worst stories, but I think it's um, it's really interesting. Mm. So that's all on the table. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, we hadn't talked about it at all pre- previously other than we decided to do it. So uh, especially since you're not super familiar with his, his, his uh, writing, I think it'll be interesting to see what you think about it. Right away, um, I noticed that this is in some sense a structural obverse to the usual monster mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Instead of having a slow buildup, wondering what it is that we're going to, our, our viewpoint character, or our viewpoint if it's a third-person narrator, um, what it is that we're going to encounter, we almost immediately uh, encounter it. Yep. And what we get are not small revelations about, oh, my God, it's actually big, and oh, my God, it's... But instead, we get details just filling in what is already a terrifying, massive outline. Uh, And then, now that we've established that this monster is out there, we have a story that looks like it's one man's survival. Our narrator, who mm-hmm. we ultimately come to know is named Tom. Um, and he is, he has managed to lock himself in a steel house um, on the deck of the ship that apparently the this monstrous thing can't penetrate. Uh, but he's locked himself in with the youngest apprentice on board named Jokey. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the story, our narrator is able to catch a glimpse through the a port a hole of this house, so-called, or hear things like glut, glut, which is the sound of the creature eating a human being. We mm-hmm. learned that early on. Um, or people screaming. and uh, So it's as if there were all these different people in different roles. Some of the sailors who scurry up the mast, others who lock themselves in uh, another area, uh, but, cover, but a wooden area, not a metal area of the, of the ship. Um, and one by one, we see how they fare in relation to this, uh, this beast. In fact... Our main character becomes incensed when the beast is able to insert its long tongue, which itself has teeth on it uh, and apparently is edgy enough that it can cut things. It inserts its long tongue through a porthole where Jokey had foolishly left the porthole cover, the steel porthole cover open and breaks through into the porthole. The tongue goes around and it it kills Jokey. At that point, our narrator grabs a hatchet from the broken open chest of Carpenter's tools, keenly sharp, and he manages to hack through the tongue. 
Um, that probably is what causes the creature ultimately to leave. Um, and all that's left is this huge, huge tongue. The assumption, the, the inference is that the creature as a whole was 100 tons. That's, that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can view this then as a story of a narrator encountering a force of nature. But I think there's another way to do it. I'm very taken by your suggestion that if we look at Jokey, I don't know that you meant it this way. If we look at Jokey as the young um, William Hope Hodgson character who has been abused, what we find is this long serpent, this tentacled thing um, from a standpoint of Freudian phallic imagery it's as if it were basically this huge phallus attached to a bunch of other phalluses and coming out of the mouth of this thing is yet another phallus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's tongue and teeth and tongue and tentacles and long snaky thing. And it's called a serpent at one point. We could allegorize it and say that this is this is the result of original sin. This is, you know, the serpent gone crazy. And uh and what is the serpent, after all, but a temptation that allows us knowledge that lets us know of our own nakedness and sexuality? So Jokey, what an interesting nickname this fellow, young fellow has. Um, this is no joke at all. But jokes structurally are identical with tragedies, mm-hmm. which brings us back to, to Aristotle and his three unities for a tragedy. Uh, they're, they're exactly the same structurally. The difference is stylistically. Right. If you if you're laughing at the style of the downfall, then you get Punch and Judy. If you aren't laughing at it, then you get some terrible, uh, you know, the death of Ivan Illich. Um, Here we could think of this as a tragedy, except Jokey gets killed and it is to revenge Jokey that finally the narrator picks up a hatchet and attacks, and in that sense cuts off, well, it could be a tongue, it could be, it's clearly another phallic symbol, and drives the beast away. So if we view the older man as protecting the younger man, then this is a story that is in some sense self-healing for Hodgson to write. Mm -hmm. However, uh, and, and I don't think that that's an unreasonable thing to look at, but I do notice that As I read the story and I hear the narrator from the very first word identifying with the crew as a whole, Mm -hmm. we are 130 days out from Melbourne and for three weeks have lain in this sweltering calm, right? It is midnight and our watch on deck until 4 a.m. I go out and sit on the hatch. A minute later, Jokey, our youngest prentice, joins me for a chatter many are the hours we have spent thus and talked in the night watch as though to be sure it is jokey who does the talking i am content to smoke and listen giving an occasional grunt at seasons to show that i am attentive mm-hmm. now we clearly is a word that identifies to me at least the narrator with the entire rest of the crew mm-hmm. and the fact that he sta- sits there and basically smokes and just is polite enough to let Jokey know that he's still paying attention, 
makes it seem as if there is a generational difference between Jokey and the narrator. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. philosophically, if we view them as two different versions of William Hope Hodgson, I suppose that's true. But in the back frame, we come to learn that Tom is 19. Mm -hmm. He's not a 35-year-old seaman who is indulging this youngster. He's 19. And I would like to suggest that with all of this phallic imagery going on, it may be that Tom's relationship with Jokey is different from his relationship with the rest of the crew. That Jokey has come out and spent countless hours with him in the dead of night, when the two of them are the only people awake on the ship. This monster, by the time the tongue comes through the portal, um, has already devoured or maimed and certainly frightened every other member of the the crew. And it has done the same for our narrator. When it first appears, its presence gets people to gasp and run away. Jokey, in fact, falls backward and hits his head and is knocked out. Mm -hmm. Everybody runs for his life. All every man for himself, but not Tom, as imminent as is this clearly radical danger, Tom scoops Jokey up and runs with him into the steel house, then runs out again and unhatches the door, unhooks the door so that he can come back in and pull it closed, preserving the two of them together. Every other person seems to go to preserve himself. Tom does not. He makes sure to save Jokey or he would die in the attempt because carrying another person will slow him down. And so it's not hard to suggest that there is something homoerotic here, that the relationship between Jokey and um, and Tom has a kind of tension in it. I'm not suggesting that they actually were lovers. I don't think the story gives us any no, warrant yeah, to suggest not, that. Yeah. But we also don't have any warrant to understand why it is that William Hope Hodgson was um, mean, um, vicious in snapping the handcuffs on Harry Houdini, who was himself a famous bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some kind of physical competitiveness in Hodgson and in this story that strips it down to just a conflict of body versus body. And it is only when Tom decides to have to make use of something that is not simply his body, that he picks up the hatchet, that he's able to escape being overpowered. This tropical horror comes at a period when for three weeks, They have been entirely becalmed. That is, nothing has happened. They are unlikely to ever reach land again. They are running out of everything. Water is an issue. And so what saves him is finally being moved to protect his younger self, to protect the object of his affection, whether or not physically uh, enacted, I am not going to suggest. What he finally does that and then collapses. And it's just by happy coincidence 
that another vessel comes by and finds, quote, this is from the, the log of the first mate uh, and, and the captain. They both sign it, William Norton, master, and Tom Briggs, first mate. Um, a youth of about 19 in last stage of inanition, meaning utter exhaustion, also part remains of boy about 14 years of age. So the two of them are found together. Mm-hmm. And it's only by the intervention of these two older men, um, William Norton and Tom Briggs, another Tom, um, that our Tom is able to be revived and brought back to life. Ultimately, the story seems to be suggesting we need to be able to trust older men. We need to be able to trust the society of men. But the reality is when nothing else is around and there is no sense of civilization producing rules that can that constrain us, then this monster arises from the depths around us and it's phallic tentacles strike out in every direction Mm. is horrible. It is lethal and it would destroy civilization were it not for the fact that those conditions can change and tools can make it possible to advance beyond the merely bodily. I think read it a symbolic way, read in a symbolic way, this is a quite powerful story. And if we knew William Hope Hodgson as a real human being, we might even see that it is quite revelatory of the kind of person he is and the issues that he had to deal with. Um, it is not, it's not considered unreasonable for a man to volunteer for war. Certainly many men volunteered for what was then called the Great War. Hodgson was born in 1877, was it, Jesse? Mm-hmm. Something like that, yep. So when he married in 1912, he would have been 35 years old. Mm-hmm. His wife was 35 years old. They weren't marrying to have kids. He hadn't spent his life wooing women. He never produced any children. Mm-hmm. But he had to volunteer for war because he was beyond the age when he would have been conscripted. Mm -hmm. He had to volunteer if he wanted to go at all. And yet he did. And it killed him. End of marriage. End of relationship with females. You can't help but wonder if he did not find his life in making something else. And he made it in photography. He made it in bodybuilding. He made it in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he tried to make it in soldiering. It's, a, it's an interesting story of someone struggling against nature, a nature that can reveal itself when everything else is stripped away. I think it's really quite powerful as a story. It, it is. It's powerful and it's, it's very raw. Uh, and one of the things we haven't talked about, which is, to me, it just strikes me every time I read it. It's like, this is just weird. Why did he do this? Um, and then, of course, when we get the back frame, now it makes a little more sense. But the, the, the tense is so strange. Listen, we are 
130 days out from Melbourne, and for three weeks we have lain in this sweltering calm. So it's present tense. Next line, it is midnight, and our... None of this is present tense. It's all past tense. Him writing down for the crew of the other ship what happened. And then they sign off on it saying, this is backed up by by what we found. Like, this is... So this is a found document sort of story, except the document is, is not found without its owner. It's found and it's backed up. So this is a technique that Hodgson uses... Famously in House on the Borderland, um, to great effect, I think. It's a technique he uses uh, in other places, too, um, to great effect. You know, that message in a bottle sort of thing. But the thing mm-hmm. is, is throughout this story, it, it's always like that. It's always present tense. And as you point out, we see the monster right away, right? As soon as, basically, they sit down and are smoking and there's a, a, a tiny pause where nobody's talking for a minute um the monster appears we get a great look at it um the description of it and then it proceeds to basically terrorize these men and uh one of the analyses i read it's on a a great website uh called old style tales it points out that you know this is if this was a physical creature an actual sea monster it probably is wasting a lot of energy outside the sea, uh, going after relatively um, relatively little food compared to what it could find in the sea. If if it's a monster that big, it, it needs a lot of food. It has the capability, obviously, of, of getting it with its uh, tentacles and its uh, its clippers. It's got like uh, claws like a lobster. Um, all of this stuff. It seems like it's malice and that it's toying with them. And then there's this great scene where uh, they're trying to play quiet and play dead as if there's nothing in there. I want to read this. This is on the page three of the version I've got in front of me um, near the top. A time of quietness follows. And presently I see that the day is breaking. Not a sound can be heard, save the heavy grasping breathing of the thing. And the thing is capitalized. As the sun rises higher and the creature stretches itself out uh, along the deck and seems to enjoy the warmth, still no sound, like a snake, right? Still no sound, either for the men forward or the officers aft. I can only suppose that they are afraid of attracting its attention. Yet a little later, I hear the report of a pistol away aft. And looking out, I see the serpent raise its huge head as though listening. By the way, it, it's described as having no eyes. Uh, as, it, as it does but so... But later, later it's described as having pig-like eyes. Right. As, added, as it does so, I get a good view of the forepart in the daylight and see uh, that the night, what the night has hidden there, right in the mouth, is the pair of little pig eyes that seemed to twinkle with a diabolical intelligence. Uh, Hodgson seemed to have had a thing for pigs as well, being monsters. It is swaying Uh its head slowly from side to side, then without warning, it turns quickly and looks right in through the port. I dodge out of sight, but not soon enough. It has seen me, and it brings its great mouth up against the glass. And then this is a great line. I hold my breath. My God, if it breaks the glass... I cower horrified. So 
what's what's astonishing is that it it sees him it's it's coming after him it's sort of toying with him it's laying about enjoying its previous meals and then there's a scene that comes up right after that where he looks out says it must be night and he looks out and the whole th- the, the basically the creature has enveloped the the room that they're in with its mouth and the great darting tongue he sees at the last minute and dodges out of the way, breaks through and into the room and kills Jockey. And then there's the scene where he chops off the, the 500 pound uh, tongue um, that they find later on. Um, and then he passes out. Right. And then we get, uh, we found the, sh- the Hispaniola found this ship and they found a man and all that stuff. So this, it's almost like visually, it's a a tall tale that is brought because of that tense. It's brought to you in a way that I I rarely see in in fiction not written by children. You know what I mean? This is not a normal tense. Actually, I I had not thought about that before you brought it up, Jesse. I think it is a, an incredibly useful and astute observation. I would point out to you that although you can narrate stories in the present tense, and mm-hmm. this is a clear demonstration of it, the normal tense for narrative narration in novels and short stories in English is, in fact, past tense. Mm-hmm. However, that is not true of one important genre. A rabbi, a priest, and a minister walk into a bar. <laughs> right. Get a In little fact, it, they are a little jokey. Jokes typically have present tense. And as I said earlier, structurally, jokes and tragedy are identical. They vary stylistically. And I think what you've done here is pointed out that the content is I mean, among other things, the content here is so horrible, but the tense makes it like a joke. Mm. There is an effort here to bring together the two selves of William Hope Hodgson, if you like, mm-hmm. or his his desires with a world, a, a life that he can, in fact, comport himself in uh, legitimately. So this little story that looks like a, uh, a an exercise for a painter, you know, let's see how horrible I can make this picture, turns out to be something about which there really always is more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.